Let us pray. O God, by your Spirit, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our New Testament reading comes from the first book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let us listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Today's passage from Luke's Gospel picks up the story with the disciples in Jerusalem who are hearing, for the first time, news of a resurrected Jesus appearing to some believers on the road to Emmaus. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do you doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The word of the Lord. Is it a ghost? Or is it Jesus? Luke is clearly fielding a lot of questions about whether Jesus really was raised from the dead. Luke's gospel was written 50 years or so after the resurrection, so no one in this community likely had a first-hand account of what had happened there. So they wondered, the people wondered, was it really Jesus the disciples saw, or did the disciples simply see a ghost? These are, of course, questions that still persist today. Was Jesus really raised from the dead, or was his resurrection more of a metaphor or an idea meant to inspire? Was a resurrected Jesus real, I mean real, or just a figment of the disciples' hopeful imaginations? The prevalence of these questions in Luke's community might explain Jesus' urgency in today's passage to prove to the disciples to prove to them that he is not a ghost. First he has them touch him, and then he asks for some food and eats some broiled fish in their presence. It's an odd, if not goofy, exchange here, but it works. You can't touch a ghost. Ghosts certainly can't eat. So this must be Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, in the flesh. Now given a year or so of virtual meetings, restricted worship, and social distancing, we might have a greater appreciation now for Luke's desire to embody the resurrected Christ. Now more than ever, we know the value of human touch, of physical presence. The idea of something is simply not enough for us. We need to experience it, to touch it in the flesh. 
And so Luke ends his account of Jesus' life by making something abundantly clear to those in his community and I think also to us here today. Jesus' resurrection is not simply a spiritual event that pays some cosmic debt. According to Luke's account of Jesus' life after his death, resurrection is simply now the way life works. In the world of author Flannery O'Connor, the South is a region of ambiguous Christianity. Her stories reflect a land overflowing with churches and Christians where religion is present everywhere, but rarely practiced in its true and holy form. Instead of a people seeking redemption, O'Connor paints the picture of people striving instead for respectability. While people might appear to be good, at the core, she believes, they reject their need for Christ's redemption because to do so would accept admitting their own fault. Between the self-satisfied religious and the secular non-believers, the image and the idea of God is present everywhere in the world O'Connor constructs. But according to her, the power of the gospel in this world is failing. This idea is a theme on which O'Connor builds in much of her writing, including her story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. In the story, through the characters of Grandma and the Misfit, O'Connor depicts the shortcomings of human beings and their need for redemption, whether they recognize it or not. There's this famous quote, Jesus thrown everything off balance. These are the words of the misfit at the end of the story, where Connor has the misfit explain why he does what he does. And as often as the case in O'Connor's fiction, it centers around Christian practice and Christian belief. This is what the misfit says. Jesus thrown everything off balance. If he did raise the dead, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best way you can. In other words, the misfit recognizes that the resurrection is the crucial question of human life. Is it Jesus or is it a ghost? The resurrection is this powerful mystery planted right in the heart of our lived human experience. It's a wonder too ridiculous to be believed and yet too powerful to be ignored. Jesus has indeed thrown everything off balance. Theologian, Lutheran theologian David Lose does a lot of reflecting on the scriptures, and he believes the primary temptation of people of faith, both in the scriptures and in the church today, our primary temptation is not doubt. Sure, sometimes we're going to struggle to believe. That's going to happen. Life is hard. But he does not believe that doubt is our primary temptation. He believes, and I would agree, our primary temptation is to simplify to simplify who God is and how God works. Instead of sitting with the mystery of a God in the flesh, we try to make sense of the situation best we can, because if we can't understand God, comprehend God, then God remains beyond us, and that means if God's beyond us that we, we can't control God. 
which is really problematic for us because we tend to fear things we can't control. So we try to control God, he argues, by clinging to the popular and comprehensible idea that God is way, way beyond us, out there, somewhere, far away, not here. God is holy, we are not, end of story. This idea that God is available to us here and now in the flesh incarnate is much too real and confusing and threatening for us to fully embrace in everyday life. A God who is with us in the muddled mess of everyday life, the decisions we have to make, the relationships we have to mend, the budgets we have to balance. A God present in all that is just too complicated to explain. So to simplify things, we spend much of our lives, much of our energy, much of our faith looking for God in any place other than the place where we currently are. If we're honest, I think we all believe our life is just too broken. Our world is just too broken to have God in it. Now, if we embrace this view that God is far, far away from us, the resurrection becomes all about the canceling of some cosmic debt in a bank far away so that we can one day be with God in a place we've never been before. And this sounds all right. It sounds pretty good. But the problem is it doesn't fit with the gospel story. It doesn't fit with the God revealed to the world, to us, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus, we believe God comes to us to be one of us, to live our life. He's not far away. He's right here. Another problem with putting God far, far away is that it makes the primary task of the religious life this striving and improving so we can move closer and closer to God inch by inch. Instead of training our eyes to see God's spirit amidst a work of our lives, to see God in our lives, instead of doing that, we always imagine, we hope, that God is just around the next bend, just further down the road. With this mindset, the purpose of life is not to become more human, more like Jesus, but instead to become more like God, escaping the confines of this mortal life to live as spirit with the spirit. But simply seeing God as beyond us, far beyond us, leads to the formulation, flesh bad, spirit good, which does not fit with the incarnation or the good news of Christ's resurrection. While we typically expend so much of our energy each and every day in the attempt to meet God in the life beyond death, Jesus invites us to repent, to turn around and face with hope where we are and who we are, which takes us to the end of Luke's gospel today. Today's passage in Luke's version is Luke's version of the Great Commission. And it's interesting to consider how Luke's version is different than Matthew's Great Commission. Many of us here are familiar with Matthew's Great Commission that ends his gospel story. We reference it in nearly every baptism. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Matthew's Great Commission is what has compelled the church for over 2,000 years to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything Jesus taught us. Now, but Luke's commission, Luke's commission has a very different emphasis. Here again, the commission that ends his gospel account. Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. No talk of making disciples or of baptism. No mention of spreading Christ's teachings around the world. According to Luke, the primary task of disciples is the proclamation, the preaching, the living of repentance and forgiveness of sins in Christ's name. All the miracles, all the scriptural affirmations, even the resurrection from Luke's point of view, all those things are in service to the good news that change is possible, repentance, and grace is real, forgiveness. As you know, may know, the literal definition of to repent is to turn around. So what Jesus, I think, is giving his disciples here as he stands before them in the flesh is an object lesson they cannot miss. His very presence among them is an invitation for them to turn away from looking for God into the future so they can see God present with them now. The resurrection didn't send Jesus up into heaven. It brought him back down to earth so he could reveal to all of us what's possible with God. Which is why, in addition to living out Matthew's commission, we need to preach repentance and forgiveness. We need to live and speak in a way that professes that because the tomb is empty and Jesus walked among us, nothing in life, nothing in life, is beyond the transformative power of God's grace. Nothing. Not your addiction, not your broken relationships, not our nation's obsession with violence, not our struggling education system, not our hyper-partisanship or our racial tensions. Nothing is beyond God's grace. It's almost been a year now that I've been your interim pastor. And one of the most common critiques I've re received during my time with you is that I, get, I can get too political sometimes in my sermons. When I talk about race or hyper-partisanship or protests or violence, I get feedback. Some of it's positive, a lot of it's negative. And I want you to know I appreciate all the comments, I appreciate all the feedback. I really do. It means you're listening, which is nice, but it also means you're engaged. So I want to be clear about something today. The reason I work hard to apply the scriptures to the real challenges and disagreements that threaten us as individuals and as a nation. The real reason I do that is because of what I believe about the resurrection story. If being political is exploring what the good news of a risen Christ has to say to the real problems that real people face, then I am guilty as charged. I know no other way to make the resurrection real than to figure out how it impacts all the places in our world, in our life, where we need repentance 
forgiveness, and new life. Our commission, as I understand it from Luke, is to live as if the resurrection is real, by turning to face, by repenting, by turning to face the real problems of our day and preaching into them, boldly and without apology, that change is possible and forgiveness is obtainable. Nothing in our world is beyond repair. No breach is too wide, no problem too big. Christ is risen, and he walked among us to remind us that the resurrection impacts our life, not only after our death, but now, in all the places where we live and move and have our being. Nani Bowles Weber is the Lutheran pastor of Denver's Church of All Saints and Sinners. In her latest book, Pastrix, Pastrix, excuse me, Nadia writes these words. God's grace is not defined, she says, as, being as God being forgiving to us. Grace is when God is a source of wholeness, even though we sin, which makes up for my failings. My failings hurt me and others and even the planet. And God's grace to me is that my brokenness, my brokenness, our brokenness, is not the final word. My selfishness is not the end all. Instead, it's that God makes beautiful things out of even my own garbage. Grace isn't about God creating humans as flawed beings and then acting all hurt when we inevitably fail and then stepping in like the hero to grant us peace, like saying, oh, it's okay, I'll be a good guy and forgive you. Grace is God saying, I love the world too much to let your sin define you and be the final word. I am a God who makes all things new. Alleluia and amen.